Now, friends, we have come to the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, and I'm sure that you have found your place there. This is the section where suffering produces obedience to the will of God. And this, I believe, is a very important chapter. It is one that you and I need to consider today. I'm reading now, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now, this is a verse that I must confess I have just been given new insights into it. It's a verse that disturbed me a great deal, and if you'll notice in my notes, I have very little to say about it. In fact, our notes are very brief through this section here. It is because of necessity. They have to be brief because we attempt to elucidate and enlarge upon them in our study. But I've never gone into a great deal of detail of this verse. And I have been rather amazed to discover that others, likewise, have more or less bypassed it and have not dealt with it in detail at all. Now, I trust that, again, that the Spirit of God may give us an insight into this that will be helpful to us. Now, he says here, "...for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh." Well, the "...for as much," I think, refers us back to the third chapter in verse 18, and I'll turn back and read that. It reads, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit." So these two verses go together, and as I indicated last time, that I would dwell upon that when we got to this particular place. Now, this is a reminder again that in his human body, Christ not only endured pain, but he was actually put to death in the flesh. Now, there is a very popular book. The title of it is, When God Died. Well, God didn't die. And the theology that came up some time ago that said God is dead. Well, he never died and he's not dead today, and he hasn't even been sick. Christ died in his human body that he took yonder at Bethlehem. And as the writer to the Hebrews put it, that he was tempted in all points as we are. He knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was actually to bleed. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to shed tears. He knew what it was to be brokenhearted. He knew what it was to rejoice. He was perfectly human, and he died in that human body. Now, actually, he brought an end to his relation to the sins of man when he died on the cross because he bore the penalty in his own body. 
And we were told that. You will recall back in the second chapter, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. Now, three times here we are told that it was in his flesh and in his body that he paid for the penalty for man's sin. And therefore, that leads me to say this. He did not die in sin, nor did he die under sin, but he died to sin. He took my place, he took your place, he paid the penalty. Now, from here on, he'll not be back to die for sin. He will no longer have any relationship to sin himself because of the fact he came back from the dead, you see. And when he came back from the dead, made alive, came back in a glorified body, and he was quickened in the Spirit, as we're told here in verse 18 again. Made alive by the Spirit is the better translation. Then when he was raised from the dead, he has a life that now lives in a body, he's up yonder in a body today, that is completely devoted to the service of God, for he is God. And in the enjoyment of full and free access to God and to all creation in his body. And he's able to make this benefit over to us. Now, we are told here, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Actually, the word here is the same thought. There's some that have tried to say it's resolution, but it's not quite like that. This is a very difficult verse, by the way. It's the thought that leads to a resolution. And what is it? With the same mind. Well, that's what Paul was talking about. You remember when he says, let this same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he hath suffered in the flesh. Now, he says, those of us that have suffered in the flesh, we have ceased from sin. And that, may I say, is a very unsatisfactory translation. And it is that that disturbed me. I have before me right now a half a dozen of the outstanding Greek scholars that have commented on this. Unfortunately, a couple of them avoid it altogether. And it's this expression, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now, the word is pow. The word actually means to stop, means to cease in the active voice. Pow means that. In fact, you have it like that over in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. That is, they're going to stop. And I've emphasized that in the past. Now, over in Greece, when we were there, I took a walk from the Hilton Hotel down to Constitution Square. And I'd come to a corner and there would be a sign up there, like our sign, stop. Only on it, it had pow. It would be pi, alpha, upsilon. Pow. That means stop. 
That's in the active voice, by the way. An active verb means that the subject does something. A passive, or in the Greek here, it's metal, and the metal means that the subject is acted upon. Now, that's the word here. Pao means to stop, but here it's in the metal voice. The subject doesn't do anything. And therefore, Dr. Thayer translates it literally as this, hath got release. Now, if you've suffered in the flesh, you've got release from sin. What does he mean by that? All right, now, will you look at that for just a moment? First of all, I would say that God today will use suffering to keep you from sin. I'm confident that many of us have experienced that. Suffering will keep us from sin. But he's saying more than that here. This word hath got release from sin. Now, that means that God has made an adequate provision for you and me to live the Christian life. And as Dr. Griffith Thomas says, this verse right here is Peter putting Romans 6 of Paul in a nutshell, just putting it in one verse here. Now, what is that? Well, it's the provision God has made for you and me to live the Christian life. Now, Peter's made it very clear. We've been born again by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Using the Word of God will produce a Son of God. And that Son of God now has a new nature. Now, that new nature is not going to live in sin. The illustration, and it's a Bible illustration, and I use it a great deal, is the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son got down in the pig pen. But you see, he wasn't a pig. He had the nature of his father that lived down that road in that wonderful mansion. And that boy had the nature of his father. And he didn't like eating out of a trough. He didn't like eating the swill that the swine ate. He enjoyed sitting down at the table with a white linen tablecloth and using a knife and fork and having a nice steak, prime rib, put before him, and other delicacies, and touch it off with ice cream. That boy didn't care for the pig pen. He had the nature of his father. Now, that's Peter saying that here, and he's saying because of that the same thing Paul says. You are now identified with Christ. When you came to the Lord Jesus and you were born again, the Spirit of God baptized you. That is, he identified you with Christ. Now, let that mind, that thought, Christ is up yonder at God's right hand in a body, totally devoted to the service of God for you and for me today. All right, do you think, my friend, that if you really have been born again, that if you're really a child of God and you have a new nature, do you think that you can go on living in sin? Now, I'm a Calvinist, and those of us that listen to us on the radio know that I emphasize the security of the believer. But I think today that there's such an overemphasis in that connection that many of our Arminian friends need to be heard today. And that's the reason that I feel as kindly as I do to the Pentecostals. They are producing 
a doctrine that's been forgotten, and that's holiness. And that's a life that should be lived for God today. Now, friends, you just can't be a child of God and go out and live in the pig pen. If you do, you're a pig. Let's face it. Pigs live in pig pens, and they love it. But sons don't love it. And therefore, he says, God now has made every arrangement for you. Born again, indwelt by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, identified now with Christ, and now the Spirit of God. As Paul, not only in Romans 6, but Romans 7, he shows you're defeated when you live in the flesh. But in Romans 8, God has provided the Holy Spirit for you to live by the power of the Spirit. And again, I come back to this. This is not the active voice. What we have here is a word that doesn't mean cease, hath got release. God has made every arrangement for you and me not to live in sin today. And these great gross sins that these people were indulging in, and many of us have, we can't live in them today. It'd be impossible for us. And the son can get in the pig pen, but you can put this down for sure. He won't stay in the pig pen. One day he has to say, I will arise and go to my father. And my friend today, if you're living in sin and you're comfortable in it, I would question your salvation. I sure would. Because if you're a child of God, you can't do it. That's the important thing. Somebody says, can a Christian do this or do that? He might do it one time, friend, but if he lives in it, there's something radically wrong. This is an important verse, and we've spent time with it, and I'd like to move on. But let me say this. A child of God with a new nature longs to please Christ in all things. And if you don't, friend, Something is radically wrong. And that's the reason that I believe the study of the Word of God is essential today. Now, I know that I play on an instrument of one string. I'm no musician, so I've only got one string on mine. And that is, it takes the total Word of God today. Not just a few little verses and draw out some little legalistic system by which you attempt to live. And if you'll follow that, why, you'll be able to live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life by following rules. You can only live the Christian life by having the mind of Christ and by having the Spirit of God moving in you to please God and to refrain from these things that bring a disgrace. Now, let's keep right on. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of man, but to the will of God. Now, Paul is very strong in this connection, as you remember. You go to the 8th of Romans, Paul is very bold there. He says, "...they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. But to be carnal-minded is death, but to be spiritually-minded is life and peace." Now, to be carnally-minded is death. What does he mean? You lose your salvation? No, sir. It means you're dead to any fellowship with God. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, John says we lie and do not the truth. My friend, you can't live in sin and have fellowship with God. And that's the thing that's keeping people away from the Word of God today. It's the reason that I have to confess. Today, Christians are a minority. But in going through the Bible like we're doing, I appeal only to the minority of the minority. Because today, a great many are trying to find a shortcut to live the Christian life. And my friend, there's no shortcut. God says he'll use suffering in your life in order to keep you from sin. And now he says here that you can no longer live in the things of the flesh, these lusts, desires of men, but to the will of God. You're either going to live today to please men, or you're going to live to please God. And you can't do both. Now will you notice, verse 3, "...for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles." When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, carousings, and abominable idolatries. Simon Peter spells out the sins here. I asked Homer Rhodey, he was years ago. He became a very personal friend of mine, and I loved him in the Lord. Homer Rhodey, he were, and I were having lunch together. And I said, you were with Billy Sunday for so many years. What do you say was the secret of his ministry? He said this, he preached on sin, and he always was specific when he spoke about sin. He spelled it out. Well, you know that Simon Peter spelled it out here. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, that's living in sex today, lust, and that includes a great many things, lusting after the things of the flesh and excess of wine, that's drunkenness, revelings and carousings and abominable idolatries. The love of money is the root of all evil, we're told, but covetousness is idolatry today. Now, these are the things that will take you from God. And he spells them out. You don't have to guess what Simon Peter's talking about here. And I'm afraid that today we've got a great many that are pretty indefinite about this. Some wag wrote this. If you've got religion, you don't know it. If you know it, you haven't got it. And if you got it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you didn't have it. And if you never had it, you can't get it. Some of the talking I hear today sounds like that. May I say, friends, you can spell it out here. And it's written in bold letters. It's in neon lights in the Word of God. And there's no way of missing it. Verse 4, "...in which they think it strange that you run not with them to the same profligacy, speaking evil of you." Now, I worked in a bank as a boy. Began there when I was 16 years old, and they put me on a teller's cage when I was 17 and promised me that next year I'd be made a junior officer, and I felt like I was popular in the bank. And then I went to a young people's conference, and that's where I made my decision really for Christ, first time I'd ever made it publicly. 
and that I wanted to study for the ministry, and I came back and resigned, yet they let me have a part-time job. They were good to me in that way. But I found out I was no longer the popular boy in that place. I became very unpopular as a Christian. In fact, fellows that I had run with, they ridiculed me, and I guess they did well in doing it because they knew what my life had been before. But I want to tell you, that was the hardest decision that I had to make at that particular time. I hope I'm not misunderstood when I tell this little story. In those days, I went to dances. In fact, I was chairman of a dance committee that they had, of all things. Now, I imagine some of you never dreamed that I did that. But as a boy in my teens, I did. And so I thought I'd break off gradually. And so I went over to the dance that night with the idea I would not dance. I'd just stand around in the stag line. And I was standing there, and I felt, frankly, very much out of place. And a fellow in the bank that I had been promoted above him, and he didn't appreciate that, and he didn't care much for me, and especially when I announced I was studying for the ministry. And yet he was an officer, a young fellow, an officer in a church. And he came over to me. And he said, this is an H of a place for a preacher to be. And you know, that's the first time he'd ever told me the truth. I agreed with him. I found out you can't break off gradually and that the world is not going to appreciate you very much when you continue on with them. And I walked out of that place never to walk back in it again. My friend, I don't think you can go on in sin if you're a child of God. You've got the nature of Christ, you're joined to him. He's suffering no more. He suffered down here once, but he can help you. He sent the Holy Spirit down to indwell. And we've been baptized in the body of believers, as Peter's pointed out to us. And now, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, we can live for God. And we can't do it in our own strength. And he says here, "...who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the living and the dead." Now, the Lord Jesus is going to judge someday. And the believer knows that he's to come up before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord's going to judge the world. Well, will he judge believers? He sure will. Not for salvation, because you're already a child he is. But he's not going to let you get by with sin, because he's judging the world for that. And my friend... If God judges Christians today in the world, and he does, he chastises his children, and if he does, the unbeliever better beware. He is warned that he will come up someday for judgment. Now, verse 6, "...for for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to man in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit." Now, God wants the gospel preached to all men. And if they don't hear the gospel and don't respond to the gospel, he makes it very clear that they are already dead in trespasses and sins, and they will be judged as men in the flesh. But if they accept Christ, they can live according to God in the Spirit. And that is the thing the Lord Jesus made very clear in John 5:24 he says verily verily I say unto you he that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life shall not come into condemnation but is passed 
from death unto life. He was in a state, you see, of death. And he further amplified that at the time of the death of Lazarus over in the 11th chapter of John at verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? In other words, you and I are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what Paul meant in the second chapter of Ephesians when he said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. Now, in time past, Paul says, we walked according to the course of the world. And we were fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Now, that's exactly what Peter is saying here, that the gospel is being preached. And when the gospel is preached, two things happen. Some accept it. And if they accept it, they're going to live for God and live throughout eternity. And the others, they are men that are dead in sins, and they are dead to God throughout eternity. That is, no relation to him whatsoever. This is a tremendous statement that he's making here. Now, he moves on down in verse 7, "...but the end of all things is at hand." That has been true from the day that he went back to heaven. Paul could say that the coming of Christ was imminent, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. That is the rapture of the church. And he says here, "...the end of all things is at hand." God's going to bring this world to a standstill one of these days while he judges it. He'll take his own out of the world. There'll be a lot of things to straighten up in the lives of believers. They go before the judgment seat of Christ, not regarding salvation, but regarding rewards, regarding their life that they live for God. That's another reason that we should live for God down here, because we are coming up for judgment. He says, "...be ye therefore sober-minded." And I'm glad that the New Schofield Bible has put that in, sober-minded. Peter uses this expression a great deal. And when he uses it, he means actually, be ye therefore intelligent. Be an intelligent Christian. Now, an intelligent Christian is one that will know the Bible. That is, know it the best he can. I've already made the confession on this program that I marvel at my ignorance of the Word of God. And the more I study it, the more ignorant I become. I see how little I really know about the Word of God. But, friends, an intelligent, sober-minded Christian is going to know the Word of God. Be something radically wrong. And not only that, he is to be intelligent in an evil world. The Lord Jesus said, "...be wise as serpents, harmless as doves." But you better have the wisdom of a serpent today... If you don't, another snake around the corner is going to bite you. I can assure you that. Be therefore sober-minded and watch under prayer. In other words, prayer should have that anticipation in it, that expectation in it of the coming of Christ. Oh, our dead prayer meetings today, because we're not looking for him. He's the living Christ, and we ought to talk to him now. And we're going to talk to him hereafter, and he's going to talk to us. That's the one I'm not so sure I'm looking forward to. Verse 8, "...and above all things have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins." Now, he's talking about 
our relations as believers today. And you'll find out that that is something the writer of the Proverbs had to say. In Proverbs 10:12, he makes this statement, "...hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins." You see, hatred in a church will stir up strife, and this little clique will be against that little clique, and these will be against somebody else, and that type of thing. But love covereth up all of that. Maybe you don't like the way your pastor combs his hair. And a pastor friend of mine in Texas said that he had just a lock of hair right on top that always would stand up, and it didn't make any difference how he did it. And he says that actually the choir threatened to quit because they were back of him, and they could see that hair sometime during the sermon come up. And they actually became angry with him because of a lock of hair that stood up. Like that. And he said, you know, every time I went to Barber, I had him just cut that off because I didn't want to offend the choir, you know. Imagine that type of thing. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Then he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. And I think hospitality today can be expressed in a different way than actually entertaining in your home. The average minister that's going around in conferences today needs to be alone. If his wife is with him, they need to have a room in a motel where he can study and pray, and not in a home where he has to carry on a conversation all the time. And may I say, if you want to extend hospitality to your visiting speaker, take care of his motel bill. Maybe invite him out for dinner, but don't talk his arm off. Verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. Now, I've been over this before in other books, and I'm not going to develop it here at all. But just to say this, and I'm saying just what Simon Peter is saying, every man hath received the gift. Now, the gift means a particular gift. There are many gifts. And Paul has already told us in the body there are many members. And the church is a body, and there are many gifts. Now, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what your gift is, but if you're a child of God, you have some gift. And that gift may be to encourage the Through the Bible radio. And I wish that we had more that had that kind of a gift, by the way. Now he goes on. If any man speak... Notice, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, if you're not speaking the Word of God, we have no business to get in the pulpit. We have no business to say we're teaching the Bible when we're not really teaching it. Now, he says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. In other words, here's one man, he teaches the Bible one way and another another. And you say, I like this one, I don't like the other. Well, this other man will appeal to somebody that your man doesn't appeal to, by the way. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to teach the Word of God that God may get glory through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But now he's not through. He's going to continue on. Now he's going to talk about suffering in another area. These people were already now moving into the orbit of the hurricane of persecution 
that broke out during the reign of Nero. Nero had already begun the persecution of the Christians in Rome, and it was spreading out through the empire. And he's warning them now that they are moving into that orbit of suffering, and they'll become martyrs, many of these dead. And he's talking to them. You and I may not have to become martyrs, and I trust we won't, but we're going to suffer. Verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to test you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. You know, most of us, when something comes to us, we think it's something strange. Nobody else has ever suffered like we've suffered. Well, when I was pastor in Cleburne, Texas, I went on one side of the railroad track to visit a family, and there'd just been a suicide in the family, and went over to minister the Word to them. They were not members of my church. And they said this to me, Dr. McGee, why in the world did this happen to us? No one has ever been called upon to suffer as we are. I left their home, and I crossed the railroad track. It was a place then of about 15,000, and the railroad went through the town, and you better be on the right side. Well, I went over to see the family that was on the wrong side, and they had just had a suicide. And you know what they said to me? Dr. McGee, why should this happen to us? Nobody's ever been called upon to go through anything like this. Well, my friend, I don't know what your problem is, but whatever it is, I can assure you that it's not something strange. Others have gone through it, and you will never be the one that will suffer more than anyone else. Paul the Apostle was chosen. One of the reasons the Lord said, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul's gone the limit, and therefore you won't be going the limit. So don't consider it a strange thing. Now, all of us fall into this fallacy. I know when I got cancer, I could not believe it when the doctor told me what I had. I thought you could have cancer, but I never thought I could have cancer. I thought that cancer was something for somebody else, but not for me. Now, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to test you. And actually, that ought to be which is testing you. That is, it was going on then, as though some strange thing was happening to you. These believers were already being tested by suffering. And actually, suffering is not something that's accidental. It's normal Christian experience. He says, don't think it's strange, because this is the normal experience of believers. Now, he says, you can rejoice in them. Notice verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, they're to rejoice in what? the fiery trial which is to test you. And it's going to be normal Christian experience, by the way. Someone has put it this way, God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God hath promised strength from above, unfailing sympathy, 
undying love. And that is a very lovely way of expressing it. Now, someone has put it in a little different language, an unknown writer, and the language of Scripture is used. That is, the fiery trial. And we saw last time that David spoke of the fact that he was testing us and testing David, and it was like putting silver in the furnace to purify it. And you find that thought going all the way through Scripture. And Peter now has mentioned this fiery trial several times. Simon Peter knew what it was. He was crucified, finally. He was a martyr. And David certainly knew what it was to be put in the furnace. Now, David was being punished for his own sin. And that's the reason you never hear him whimper or cry out. He just asked for one thing, and that is that he'd not lose his fellowship with the Lord. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He wanted fellowship with God. And God took him to the woodshed, and in my book, he whipped him in an inch of his life. And the poor man, I think the Lord whipped him enough, but David never complained. Now, will you listen to this? This is a little poem that I think expresses it in the best way I know how to. Out from the mine and the darkness, out from the damp and the mold, out from the fiery furnace cometh each grain of gold, crushed into atoms and level, down to the umless dust, with never a heart to pity, with never a hand to trust. Molten and hammered and beaten, seemeth it ne'er to be done. Oh, for such fiery trial, what hath the poor gold done? Oh, twere a mercy to leave it, down in the damp and the mold. If this is the glory of living, then better be dross than gold. Under the press and the roller, into the jaws of the mint, stamped with the emblem of freedom, with never a flaw or a dent. Oh, what a joy the refining, out of the damp and the mold, and stamped with a glorious image, oh, beautiful coin of gold. So God has a purpose, but rejoice, he says, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, this is very important, I think, for us to see. We're to rejoice in trials. Why? Because suffering prepares us for the coming of Christ. And that's the same thing that Paul said over in Romans 8, 17. Paul put it like this. He says, "...and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together." Now, I think we need to face up to it today. There's no shortcut to living the Christian life. There's no easy way. And the thought is, as we expressed it the other day, it was a quotation, the Christian life is a banquet, because that's what he's invited us to, the table of salvation. It's a banquet, but it's not a picnic. And we are to suffer for him and with him. And this will all come out at his coming someday. And that's the reason I make it very clear. I'd be embarrassed to sit down with Paul in the glory and be on the same level with him, because he's suffered. 
and Simon Peter. We can criticize him today, but I tell you, we're going to look up to him when we get to heaven. Because, my friend, the Word of God makes it very clear that this is the way to live the Christian life, and suffering is what develops you. We heard so much today about husband-wife relations, and everything has to be smooth and lovely in the home. My friends, I don't agree with that at all. Death's going to come, and I know of nothing that drew my wife and me together like the death of our first little one. We sat there in that hospital room and just wept together and prayed together, and that is still just a sacred spot in our lives today. Did something for us. May I say it to you, and believe me, we wanted that little one. Now let me move on. Verse 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Now, that is strange language. I don't care whether it's in the Greek or the English. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. You ought to rejoice in it. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's a token, again, that you're a child of God. The greatest proof that you're a child of God is that today you can endure suffering. And if you are being carried around on a silver platter with a silver spoon in your mouth, you must not be God's child, because that's not the way he does it. Now, will you notice, the spirit of glory and God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. You can glorify God, whatever comes. They said during the San Francisco earthquake that there was a dear, wonderful Christian lady there. And she came out, and everybody else was crying, and some of them praying for the first time in their lives. And she came out, and she was singing praises to God. And somebody came to her, what do you mean, singing praises to God at a time like this? She says, I thank God that I have a God that's strong enough to shake this little earth. Amen. May I say to you, there are very few of us here in California could praise God during the time of an earthquake. Now, let's move on here. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. And he puts murder right down with gossiping and criticizing others. He makes no distinction at all. And Paul does the same thing. You know, Paul and Peter agreed on everything. And so did Paul and James. They are all preaching the same gospel that produces the same kind of a life. And therefore, we ought not to be suffering for our own sins. May I say to you, God never tests you with sin. God never tests you with evil. He'll never do that. James made that clear to us. Now, that is exactly what Peter is saying here. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, that is, a child of God, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Now, this poor boy, I read his letter, and it's in prison. Well, my heart goes out to that young fellow because he's being punished today. But may I say to you, he is suffering because of his own sin, and he can't glorify it the fact that he's in prison today, but he can glorify the Lord and witness for him which he's doing. Now, will you notice verse 17? 
For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, that's a tremendous statement that he gives here. Believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he makes that very clear to us over in Second Corinthians. For instance, you have in the fifth chapter, and I believe it's verse 10. I probably ought to turn and read that. We are told here, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." Now, this is we, Christian, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. That is, while you're living down here, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We all must come before the judgment seat of Christ. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If God is going to bring you and me up before the judgment seat. Now, he's paid the penalty for our sins. But suppose that we've lived a lie that has not brought glory to him, that we have not glorified God in our lives down here. My friend, we're to be judged there. And if God's going to judge his own, I tell you, what about the lost world out there that wouldn't hear the gospel, would not obey the gospel of God? Now, verse 18, "...and if the righteous scarcely be saved..." That is, we just barely made it. The righteous are only saved by the death of Christ and their faith in Christ. That's the only way we ever got saved. We just barely made it, friends. When I look back at my life and during the time of my recuperation... My wife and I went back and talked about our past life, and we really got acquainted. I kidded her. I said, my, I'm just now coming to know you, and I think maybe we ought to get married now that I know you. But I said to her, when I look back at my life, the way I started off, got on the wrong track, wrong foot, why, it's nothing but a miracle that God ever saved me. I just scarcely made it. And you remember John Wesley? He spoke of himself as a brand plucked from the burning. You see, John Wesley, when he came to this country, and I've told this little story before. I have it in a biography of John Wesley. And when he came to this country, he was not saved. He was not a Christian. He made the statement, I came to America to convert Indians, but who's going to convert John Wesley? And he met at the governor's court in Georgia, one of the noblemen of Great Britain, one of the lords that had been sent over to administer that area. And he was a very wealthy man with a name, and he'd married a beautiful young wife. Well, here's John Wesley at that court. And you know what happened. That young woman and that young man began to eye each other. And John Wesley must have fallen in love with her. He wanted her to leave and go with him out and live among the Indians. He thought he was a Christian and a missionary. And the story is told of how she sent him back to England. She said, John, this won't work. <laughs> I'll love you and I'll always love you. But God has called you to do something for him. She was a Christian. And she sent him back to England. And they said that he started to get on the gangplank three times and started to walk back. And she motioned him to go. And he went back to England. One night, walking down Aldersgate, he went upstairs and he heard this man speaking on Galatians. And he could write later in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And that was given to me 
an assurance there that he had forgiven me of my sins. Now, if the righteous scarcely be saved, a brand plucked from the burning, what Paul says, where shall the ungodly in this sinner appear? If you're listening to me today and not a Christian, if Vernon McGee just barely made it, and I only made it but trust in Christ, how do you think you're going to make it? May I say to you, not but one hope, and you can just scarcely be saved. And that is only one way. The Lord Jesus said, I'm the way. Now he says, verse 19, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now this is the thing that those that have really suffered know what it is to commit themselves. Actually, this is the same thing again that Paul talked about. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep my deposit. That is, that which I've committed unto him. What's he committed unto him? Well, some people think that's the gospel he committed to Paul. All right, I'll go along with that. But I think the deep meaning there is, Paul says, I came to Christ and just committed everything to him. I made a deposit. What things were gained to me, I counted loss. And what was lost became gain to me in order that he said I might win Christ. Well, he had about eight different things that he was trusting for his salvation. He says, well, that all became dung. I flushed that down. I trusted that no longer. And I only had one way, and that was Christ. I trusted him. And that's what he means here. He says, commit the keeping of their souls to him. Have you really trusted him? I'm sure that many of you have a safety deposit box. And in that safety deposit box, you keep your valuables. And you go to sleep at night, and you don't worry about it at all. And friends, I went to sleep last night, and I didn't worry about Vernon McGee's soul. Do you know why? You say, well, it's not very much, and it wouldn't be worth putting in a safety deposit box, and you're right. But I went to sleep last night in peace because... He's taken care of all of that. I've made my deposit with him, and I trust him today. Have you made a deposit with him? Have you committed your soul to him? If you've done that, even when trouble comes to you, and the dark day comes, and you're called to go down through the valley, may I say to you, you can do it knowing that he'll take care of you. Let me read this to you again. God hath not promised Skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide Swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep. Never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. And that was written by Annie Johnson Flint. 
Have you made your deposit? Have you committed your soul unto him? This is a wonderful section of the Word of God. Now let's come to chapter 5, and here you have the suffering and the second coming of Christ. You see, the Christian life begins with the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me on the cross. And he bore the penalty there of our sin. And then there is suffering for the child of God today because he uses that in our lives to sharpen us, to make us the kind of Christian that he can use and the kind that he wants. And we see, first of all now, in the first four verses of this chapter, it produces service and hope. Now, let me read this. You have the suffering of Christ in the past, the present suffering of the saints, and that's the method God uses. And then we have the second coming of Christ when he comes first for his church. What a time of real blessing that's going to be. And our present suffering is related to that. Will you listen now to verse 1? The elders who are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now, he begins by asserting his position. Now, he doesn't even here call himself an apostle. Actually, what he's talking about here is the fact that he's an elder. And he says, I'm also an elder. That means there were other elders. And this word here for elder is a word that it's sometimes used speaking of the person, being an elder person. And presbyteros is used then. And then again, the word episkopos is used. And it speaks of the office of the man, not the person of the man, but his office. And it was an office a spiritual office of shepherding. Actually, it's the word that is used for shepherd. And that is the word that we have here. And that's all that Simon Peter ever claimed to be. He calls himself a fellow elder. He never claimed a superior place above his brethren. And on that basis, though, he exhorts them. And he was in a unique position he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, that's where he begins. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now, when was that glory? In the next epistle of Peter, the second epistle, we're going to find out he identifies that, that he was a witness of that also. And that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw him die yonder on Calvary. And he saw him transfigured yonder on the Mount of Transfiguration, which probably in the north could be Mount Hermon. I've always felt that was the place, but there's difference of opinion as to what mountain it was. But actually, it makes no difference to us today about the geographical spot. It's the thing that took place there. And Simon Peter speaks of that, that he was a witness of this. But there is a glory that's coming in the future that'll be greater than that. Now, he said, on the basis of this, he says, 
feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight of it, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I've read four verses, by the way. And beginning here now with verse 2, we have something that I feel that we should emphasize here. It suggests that the one who is an elder occupies the place of a bishop, and never is it used in the singular. It's always elders, never just one. But it means a shepherd of the flock, and it suggests provision and protection, supervision and discipline, instruction and direction, all of these that we have here, and that this ministry is to be performed in a very positive way, but also he gives a negative injunction. It is to be done for the right reason or in the right spirit, not because they must do it, but because they freely choose to do so. And will you notice that? Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight of it, not by constraint, but willingly. Do it willingly. God doesn't want you to take an office in the church on this pouting position of, well, if you can't get anybody else to do it, I'll do it. Well, my friend, if they can't get anybody else to do it, then don't you do it, because that's not the reason to serve him. And it has no value in serving him if you're doing it under constraint. He says here, willingly. And then he says, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And he makes it clear that there must be the right reason, the right spirit, and it's because they freely choose to do it, but also with the right motive, not for material gain, but for the sheer delight of doing it, finding satisfaction in the job itself rather than in what they get out of it. I said to my daughter, we were driving several years ago into the church. She was working in our radio at the time, and we were on the way to the office, and we got stuck in traffic, as usual, on the freeway. And I said to her, look around at these people. Do you see anybody that looks happy? There they sit, under tension and pressure, trying to get to a job that they hate and despise. I says, the average person today is doing something he doesn't like to do at all. I said, it's wonderful to be in the Lord's service, and you can do your job because you love to do it, and you want to do it. And that's made this ministry of radio to me a sheer joy. This is, to me, the most fascinating, wonderful thing. The Lord, you know, he never lets you do anything for him what he doesn't do something better. So he's turned around and been better to me than he's ever been to me. So I love him for it. But that is the thing he's talking about here. There must be the right motive. Now he says here something else, that neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. In other words, it must be done in the right manner, not driving, but leading, not domineering, but setting an example. 
it is a work, therefore, in which you ought to be an example to the flock. I do not think that a preacher can get in the pulpit and browbeat his congregation to do something that he actually is not doing himself. I used to make it a practice never to ask people to give to any cause that I didn't give to also. I don't think we have a right to make a demand of other folk that we are not involved in ourselves. Now, he goes on here, and he says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, it must be done with the proper awareness that in it they serve the chief shepherd to whom they are answerable, and that he will himself reward service rendered with rewards that are eternal. Now, don't get the impression that we are working for nothing. We're not. Paul made it clear, Christians not to work for nothing. You're to work for him and look to him for a reward someday. That's the way that we are to serve him. Now, he says here something about receiving a crown of glory. There are many crowns, and we've mentioned them. There's been the crown of life that he gives, the crown of righteousness. We've already talked about that. Now, what is a crown of glory? I think that it means you're going to share someday in his glory. Now, I've never had an opportunity yet in this entire course to talk about the glory of God. I actually do not have that opportunity today other than to just mention this. And I made this study many years ago, and I'm speaking now from memory. I think at that time that I found 17 separate words in the Old Testament that were translated by the word glory. And that's a word that's used today. What do you understand by the word glory? What does it mean? How big is it? What shape is it? What color is it? What is it? What is glory? And I have a notion that the average Christian would just have about the foggiest notion about this thing. Well, I found out that glory does have a shape and size. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And I'm not going into that today, but the size of this universe that they already know about is staggering. And I think we've never even gotten out of the front yard of God's vast universe. It's so great. That's glory, the greatness of our God. And then what about color? Well, you look up at this vast universe at night. Look up at the sky in the fall. If you're in New England, take a good look at the leaves back there for me because it's wonderful to be in that country and see the color. That's glory, the glory of God. I walked with a man down at Rancho Santa Fe here in Southern California. He's a man I'm sure of means. He's retired now, and he just pays attention to his garden there. He raises some of the most beautiful roses you've ever seen, and zinnias. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And, oh, they're colorful. And he just reached down, and he lifted up the head of one of those zinnias. And he said, you know... Here in the spring, I put just a little seed in the ground. Look what's come up. Look what's happened here. He says, and then they try to tell me there's no God. Glory has color. May I say to you, 
It is something that's quite wonderful, the glory. And we're going to share in that someday because he's going to give a crown of glory to those. And he's called the chief shepherd here. Now, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's Psalm 22. The great shepherd of the sheep, he watches over the sheep. And that is Psalm 23. Then Psalm 24 is the chief shepherd. And that's when he appears. And someday, our great shepherd is going to appear. And he'll still have his flock. We'll be members of that flock. How wonderful this is. Now, I must move on. In verse 5, I read, In like manner, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. They've changed that around today. And the elder are supposed to submit to the younger. This has been a young man's day and a young people's day. They're the ones that protest. They're through with the establishment and that sort of thing. But uh, a Christian young person should need to realize, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. After all, your father, if you've got a godly father, he's got a lot of sense if you really want to know the truth, and maybe more sense than you have. A friend of mine told me, he says, you know, I was ashamed of my dad when I went away to college. And he'd made good money. He was an executive. But I was ashamed of him. He had such old-fashioned ideas. He was a real square. And he says, you know, when I finished college and got out in the business world, I hadn't seen him for a couple years. And he says, you know, when I met my dad, I was just absolutely amazed of how much he'd learned in about six years. <laughs> May I say to you, a lot of young people find out that their dad learns a great deal after they've been out in the school of hard knocks in the world today. Now he says this, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. In other words, believers should not try to just insist on having their way over others and be clothed with humility. Now, we're down here in the section where suffering produces humility and patience in light, of course, of the coming of Christ. He says that clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And here again, we have something that is quite wonderful, by the way. Peter's talked a great deal about this matter of humility and also of grace. A proud person will not be able to experience the grace of God. It's only when you and I come in humility and we're to be clothed with it. Actually, we're to be armed with it. That is the picture that is given here. It should be the attitude of the child of God. Christ is the one that's going to establish justice and make things right when he comes down here. And you can't straighten out the world. You may think you can. Now he says here, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And that is anxiety. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll rest you. Bring your burden of sin to him, and he'll save you. Then come to him later on, and he will meet you and help you with your problems. Cast your care upon him. We'd worry about nothing, Paul said to the Philippians, but pray about everything. 
I just take it to the Lord in prayer and leave it there. Don't pick it up again. Verse 8, be sober. Now, actually, the word sober here, I was wrong in my note. When we saw it used back in verse 7 of chapter 4, it was sober-minded. And that does mean be an intelligent Christian. But here, the word means, it's another word, drink no wine. And it's very important to see that, by the way. And I'm going to come back to that if I have time today, because I'd like to deal with that a little farther. Be vigilant. That is, be alert. Because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And we're told to resist him. The devil's loose in the world today. Verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith. And actually it means here, it's a picture of an army that's standing against an enemy. And we should stand with other believers. I don't think you can resist the devil by yourself. You not only need the armor of God, but you also need the other believers to stand with you. Every time I get in trouble on this radio, I let all you folk know, you know why? I want you to stand with me. We need it. And that's what the word means here, to resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory. Hear that word glory again. In Christ Jesus. We'll have no glory in and of ourselves. The church is sort of like the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. It's only reflected glory. But we are going to share in that. In Christ Jesus. And actually, the word Jesus is not in the better manuscripts. It means in Christ It's that familiar expression we've dealt with before. After ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. And that word perfect here actually means to bring you to perfection, strengthen you. That's what he means. Establish. And that means to strengthen the brethren. That's what our Lord said to Simon Peter. Strengthen the brethren and then settle you. That means to restore you. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Then he gives us a little P.S. here. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I've written briefly. Silvanus wrote this. If you don't like the Greek here, blame Silvanus. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which ye stand. The church, that is, at Babylon, and I believe Babylon means Babylon here, Simon Peter's too practical to have used a figurative term. Elected together with you, greeteth you, and so doth Mark my son. You see, Mark made good. Greet ye one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And there are many things here that we could emphasize. For instance, a kiss of love. Well, Make sure that it's the right kind of a kiss. Someone has said a kiss to a young girl is hope, to a married woman it's faith, but to an old maid it's charity. But I think that we better just use the handshake today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.